we're going uh, to talk about uh, uh, spiritual habits. Last two weeks ago when I was here, I talked about some of the food of the Spirit. You guys remember that? Uh, we're not going to continue that today. God put something else on my heart, but we are going to continue on the line of spiritual habits. And today, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about what I consider two reasons or two excuses why people don't exercise their spiritual habits. Reasons why they say, it's just not for me. I'm not good enough at it. Whatever the reasons might be. And I want you to look at these and see, are, are any of these reasons why you don't put these kinds of things into practice? And what, we're going to do something that we don't do often enough, in my opinion. We're actually going to look into the Old Testament. Everybody remember what the Old Testament is? Okay. A lot of times when you hear somebody preach, we're in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament, the Jesus stuff, which is all good, but we rarely ever dig into the Old Testament stuff. And anybody who says that the Bible is boring has not read the Old Testament. There's some crazy stuff that went on in the Old Testament. Like, you can't make this stuff up. Okay? And one of, the, one of them is we're, we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges. So if you have your own Bible, we're going to be in the book of Judges, chapter 6. I will have some of the verses up here uh, as we go along. But if you want to go along in your own Bible or your tablet or your phone or whatever you have, Judges chapter 6, starting with verse 11. We're going to look at two different uh, Bible stories here this morning. We're going to talk about Gideon today. Gideon, now let me tell you a little bit about Judges. You need to understand what the book of Judges is about. So the book of Judges is God's chosen people, all right, and they... They are oppressed. They are being overrun by some bad army or some bad force or something. And God provides for them a judge, okay? Not judge the way that we think of it, but in God's terms, he provides for them a spiritual leader. And the leader listens to what God has to say, and he leads the people, and the people turn around, and they start doing what the leader says, and things are going really well, really well, really well. Then the judge dies, and then they fall back into temptation. And then they're going, God help us, God help us. And God sends them another judge. And the judge listens. And the people listen to the judge. And things are going wrong. And then the judge dies. And then they go back down again. God help us, God help us. Over and over and over again. All right? So Gideon is one of these judges that comes along. And there's some significance about Gideon. And that is this. Of all the judges that are mentioned in this book, Gideon takes up the most space. Gideon takes up about three chapters worth of judges. There's one judge in here, if you go looking for it, takes up one verse. It said, basically, it says he picked up a bone and he stabbed 3,000 people, and that was it. That's all, that's all it says about that judge. But Gideon, he's mentioned because he takes up a lot of space in the book of Judges. Now, what we're going to look at today is when God called Gideon and how Gideon reacted to God's call. Because I, I do believe God calls all of us to exercise and put into practice our spiritual practices, right? But not all of us, not all of us accept that invitation because we're afraid or, or other reasons. So we're looking at Gideon right now. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under, whatever that is, at Ophrah, and belonged to, that belonged to Joash the Abizurite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide from the Midianites. Now remember I told you that uh, Judges is about a group of people overtaking God's people. This time it's the Midianites. Okay, now I want you to look at something here. Look at what Gideon's doing. What's he doing? He's beating out wheat in a wine press. All right, now first of all, before we get to that, have you ever watched those America's Funniest Home videos of people that like hide in the trash can and jump up and spook you or they're hiding around the corner or that's me. I love doing that. My family hates it. 
But I love, I love scaring the daylights out of somebody who doesn't realize I'm two feet away from them. Okay? Uh, and if you can imagine, Gideon is hiding. All right? He's hiding. It says there on the bottom line, he's hiding. But there's some significance to what's going on here. He's beating wheat, but what's he beating wheat on? A wine press. Do you think a wine press was designed for beating wheat? What's a wine press designed for? A wine press is designed for squeezing the juice out of your grapes so you can make wine. But he's doing something that's not right. Now, I have, I always told you I'm a visual guy, so this is my bag of tricks. And I have in here one of my wrinkled shirts, okay? How many of you don't like doing chores? Raise your hand. Don't like doing chores. If you had a million dollars, you could pay somebody 900000 to do your chores, you would do it. Yes? All right. So here's my wrinkled shirt, and I tell you one chore that I never do, and I just can't stand, is ironing, okay? Now, this is it right here. I don't know if I'm afraid to burn myself or burn my clothes or burn my house down. I just don't like it. I don't like to iron, okay? So what, what's happening here, it would be like me trying to iron my shirt, but instead of using that, I'm going to come up. How many of you did this in college? You got your textbooks out? and you let it sit there for a day or two, and then you move it to the other side and try to get that flattened out, there's a much easier way to do it than that. But for whatever reason, Gideon is deciding to use the textbooks, not for what they're supposed to be used for, but to try to accomplish something else, when it would be much easier to just do it this way. Okay? Beating, be, uh, beating wheat would normally be done out in an open field. You'd break apart what you, the wheat that you're trying to get. You'd throw it in the air. The wind would blow away the stuff you don't need. The stuff you need would fall down. That's how it's supposed to be done. He's beating it out in a wine press behind a tree next to a cave, trying not to be seen, and now some guy spooks him out of the corner of his eye. Okay? Again, this is, you can't make this stuff up. All right? So here we are with Gideon. And what happens here? When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, if you're Gideon, and you're hiding, and you're beating wheat in a wine press, and this guy just scared the daylights out of you, and the first thing he says is, the Lord is with you, with you, mighty warrior, what's your first reaction? You got the wrong guy, dude. I'm hiding up here beating wheat in a wine press. I don't want the Midianites to see me down in the field. What are you calling me a mighty warrior for? That makes absolutely no sense. So your first blank right there, the angel of the Lord calls Gideon a mighty warrior. Gideon probably didn't feel that way, all right? And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Again, bad things are happening, okay? The Israelites keep falling for that same cycle. And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hands of Midian. So he's saying, Mighty warrior, what are you talking about, okay? Things have been going bad. Things are not going the way my forefathers said they would. And now you're calling me a mighty warrior as I hide out by this cave. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not, I send you. So his command, go and save Israel. Again, put yourself in Gideon's shoes right now, Okay. He doesn't want to be seen by them down in the field. He's up here. He gets scared. Mighty warrior. Now, go save your people. Yeah. How many of you would be like, no, nah, I don't think so. No. There's got to be somebody else. All right. So what happens? Gideon comes up with an excuse. And here we go. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I 
save Israel. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon's response, my clan is the weakest, and I am the least of my family. Now, I've coached baseball teams a lot of times before, and, and one team that I, I still coach to this day, we actually have a game later this afternoon, it's called the Simi Strike. And when we first started, we kind of got the players we could get, and there was, a, there was a guy on the team who was not the best, and he would admit he wasn't the best, but he had a spot on the team. And you, you ever, those of you that are in competitive sports, you know, no matter what the situation, when the, heat, when the game is on the line, the one guy you don't want coming up to bat is the guy who's coming up to bat, right? Everybody right? Okay. And, and, and this guy, I'm going to call him Adam for now because I don't know if he's here. I don't want to, you know. But Adam, we were playing in a tournament in Halloween three years ago, and we were kind of a brand new team. We hadn't quite won anything significant yet. We're in a championship game, and deep in the game, we're down by one, and guess who comes to the plate? Adam. Now, if I had pulled Adam to the side, or if he was on the bench, let's say he was on the bench, and I was going to pull him in and put him into the game at that moment. You know what he probably would have said to me? Coach, the game is on the line. I am not the best guy on this team. We're not even the best team out here, and I am not the best guy on this team. Don't put me in. I'm not the right one. That's what Gideon's saying, okay? We're not the best team out here. My, my clan is not the best clan, and of all the families in this clan, mine's the weakest. I, I, you, you got the wrong person, all right? Going back to Adam, he goes up to bat right there, gets a two RBI double, okay? Our team goes ahead. Sweet, all right. Then, but we still have to go out and play defense. And where's he playing? He's playing right field. That's where we trained him, is in right field. They got the tying run on second base, and they hit a screaming ground ball out to Adam in right field. And what does he do? Perfectly scoops it up, fires the ball to first base, gets him out. We win the championship. And our team just lost it. I mean, lost it. Parents were jumping, climbing on the fence, and our players are running down and jumping on Adam in the outfield and chanting, MVP, MVP, right? He would never have put himself in that position, okay? I put him in that position. And that's what Gideon feels like right now. God is putting him in a position where he does not feel qualified. There's got to be somebody else who can do this besides me. And you know what? As I thought about this, there's a lot of people in the Bible who God put in situations where they thought, I am not the right person, okay? Noah, Noah did not think he was the right person to be building the ark and be the only human being family left. Moses, Moses had a speech impairment. Did you know that? But yet God chose him to lead the people through the wilderness for 40 years, okay? David and Goliath. Do you think David felt like he was the right one to take Goliath down? No, we're surrounded by warriors all over the place, and I'm the one that's going to do it with a rock? Okay? Jesus. You know, when Jesus, right before Jesus died and he's in the Garden of the Gethsemane praying, you know what he said to God? God, if there's some other way to do this, I'm all for it. Right? Even Jesus. Right? So it's okay for us sometimes to think we're not the right person or there's got to be another way or there's got to be another person, but that, that does not mean that God is going to let us off the hook. So what we're going to do now is we're going to Gideon's excuse, there must be somebody better than me, all right? So when it comes to your spiritual habits, maybe you don't like to pray. Maybe you don't feel like you can give money. Maybe you don't feel like you'd be a good Sunday school teacher. Maybe you don't feel like this or that or whatever, and your excuse is somebody in this room is going to be better at it than I am, so I'm just going to let them step up and do it. And that is not the attitude that God wants us to have, all right? So 
We're going to keep looking at Gideon, but as we do this, I, I want to talk about a couple of things. So right here, I have up here a picture of two football teams. And this, in my argument, these are the two, the best and the worst team in the NFL right now. Anybody want to argue with me on that one? 49er fans who say my team is undefeated, raise your hand. Okay. My argument is, A, I'm a Cowboys fan, so you're not allowed to be number one. And B, the, as of right now, the Patriots are 7-0, the 49ers are 6-0. Okay. So as far as winning percentage, the, the Patriots are the best team. The Bengals, on the other hand, they are 0-7. Now the Dolphins are 0-6. The Bengals are 0-7. Okay. Now... I want you to think, on this side of the room over here, you guys are going to be my football team, okay? So you guys over here, you're going to, just right here on this side, we're going to collectively form a football team, okay? <laughs> this side over here, we're going, to do, we're going to go something different. We're going to go baseball. Now, who's the best baseball team in the land right now? Anybody? I would love to say the Dodgers, but <laughs> I just can't do it. So we're going to make them an honorable mention. We're going to put them right here. Okay. I can't make that argument anymore, but hopefully next year. Okay. But the best team in baseball right now, in my opinion, is the Houston Astros. They just won two games in a row. Yes, they are tied in the World Series, but they won more games this year than anybody else during the season. The bottom team is the Tigers. My, my son Joey knows the stupidest statistics ever. Watch this. I don't, I don't even know what the answer is. Joey? How many games behind were the Tigers at the end of the season? How many? Games behind. How many games did they win? 47? How many games did the Astros win? 105. Okay? So 47 wins to 105. Okay? I can ask Joey who won the Super Bowl seven years ago, and he won't even tell me who won, but the, what the score was, and who made what play during the game. Okay? So... He decided that the Tigers are the worst team. So you guys over here, I want you to tell me if you think if we formed a football team together, how many of us think we could put up some kind of a fight against the Cincinnati Bengals, the worst team in the NFL, 0-7. Anybody? Yeah, we got them done. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay, and this, te this team over here. We're going to be a baseball team, and we're going to do our best to put up a good fight against the Detroit Tigers. Anybody think we got a shot? All right. So that's, that's where we are with Gideon at the moment. All right? But let's, let's see what happens here. In Judges 7, 1 through 18, I'm not, we're not going to read through the whole thing. I'm going to tell you what happens, okay? Uh, before he gets to that point, Gideon and God go through. It's like trial and error period, okay? Gideon says to God, you know what? I don't know. God says, here, I'm going to show you something. I want you to do something for me. I want you to go into the Midianite town, tear down their idols, and burn it. Now, okay, now remember who Gideon is, right? And he goes, okay, but you know what he does? He does it in the middle of the night so nobody can see him. And God says, no, I, I, you're the one I'm calling right now. And Gideon says, okay, I'll tell you what. Let's you give me a sign. And Gideon goes out and he basically takes a towel and he lays it out on the uh, concrete and he says, when I get up tomorrow morning, I want the towel to be dry and the ground to be wet. Okay, fine. He gets up in the morning, the towel is dry, the ground is wet. And then he goes, do you think that's enough for Gideon? 
No, Gideon says, you know what? Let's reverse that. Now tonight, I'm going to go to bed. When I get up tomorrow, reverse it. I want the towel to be wet and the ground to be dry. Okay? And God makes it happen again. So ultimately, finally, Gideon goes, okay, fine. I'm not the right person, but you're not going to let this go. go ahead, let's do this. And so Gideon collects 32,000 guys to go and fight Midian, which is not enough, by the way. Midian is huge and mighty, all right? Starts with 32,000 men. And God says to Gideon, I want you to bring your 32,000 men together, and I want you to tell them, anybody who's afraid, doesn't want to fight, you can go. 10,000 guys were left. 22,000 guys left. Now we're down from 32,000 down to 10,000, okay? Now Gideon's feeling like, now what? Now, now I've got less than half what I started with, and you think I'm going to take down the Midianites. And then God says, take them down to the river. Take them down to the river and have them drink out of the river. And he says, pay attention to them. The ones that, the ones that scoop down and put their face in the water and drink like a dog, send them home. The ones that use their hand and, and eat like a human being, they get to stay. You know how many guys were left? 300 guys were left. Oops, I hit the wrong button. Three, from 32,000 men down to 300. Okay, now again, is Gideon a big, confident, mighty warrior? Absolutely not. But then he finally collects these 32,000 men, and God reduces him down to 3,000. So now... Gideon feels like you guys who thought you were going to be playing the Bengals and you guys who thought you were going to be playing the Tigers, now you guys are playing the Patriots and you guys are playing the Astros. I'm pretty sure that Royal and Simi's freshman baseball and football teams could put up a better fight against these teams than we could, right? But God is calling us to do this, all right? And not only that, of the ones we have here, we're going to cut all of us in less than half, and now God says, okay, now you're ready to go. All right, so that, there's Gideon right there. Sometimes we feel like a rock in a hard place, right? But what happened? God tells Gideon, I want you to get all you guys and grab a, a torch and grab a glass jar or whatever jar, that clay jar they had at the time. I want you to circle the Midianite army, and at this time I want you to smash your jars and start screaming at the top of your lungs. And they did, and you know what happened? The Midianites turned on each other over the chaos, and Gideon won. The battle. In a way that he never thought was going to be possible, Gideon won the battle. But you got to remember what his excuse was way back at the beginning. Remember what it was? I, my clan is the weakest, and I, uh, I am the least of my family. There has to be somebody better. And God says, yes, there may be, but I'm asking you to do this. I'm putting you in charge of doing this. I want to... I want to jump to another story in the Bible here, and this one, this one is the feeding of the 5,000. And I love, I love being able to jump through these things, because how many of you in your minds right now are going, how in the world is he going to connect the Gideon to the feeding of the 5,000? That makes absolutely no sense. But there's something that goes on in the story that relates to both. And we're not going to read the whole thing. Every, almost everybody in here should know the feeding of the 5,000, right? At the beginning of Jesus' career, he's walking around. People start hearing about him, and they start following him around. And they go out to a field somewhere, and all of a sudden, somebody realizes, hey, there's no food, and we got 5,000 of these people that need to eat. And Jesus says, chill out. Everything's good, all right? And there's a little boy there, and he has... Uh, a few loaves of bread and a couple of fists, and that's all he has. That's all the food they could somehow scrape up out of all the people that were there. 
And, you know, Jesus could easily have said, you know what, everybody, break, intermission, go to in and out Egypt, bring it back, we'll be back tomorrow morning. Okay? But he didn't do that. All right? He didn't do that. So we're, I want to look really quickly at verse 10. Just so we can get an idea for what this is about. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now notice, anybody notice a key word in there? Men, 5,000 men. Now not degrading the women, that's not at all what I'm saying here. But 5,000 men. The Bible talks a lot about men, even though the women are also there. It's not, it's not, I know if the Bible were written today, it would probably be written a different way. It's just saying that 5,000 men sat down. Now, how many of you would say that a lot of those men, maybe most of them, had a wife of some kind? Most of them probably did. How many of them had, say, at least one child? Most of them probably did. They didn't have, you know, the YMCA where they could go put their kids during the day and go follow Jesus around and come get them later. Okay? The kids followed around. So if that being the case, yes, it says 5,000 men, which could easily mean... 15,000 or more people. So, yes, it's one thing. It's one thing to feed 5,000. It's another thing to feed 15. No matter what that number is, Jesus was going to take care of this. Now, what we know is that they bring those fish and those loaves together. Jesus blesses it. They start passing it out. Everybody has enough. And then Jesus says, okay, go ahead and collect everything that's left over. All right? And that's where we are right now in verse 13. This is a picture right here of 15,000 people. Okay, it's a tennis match. I'm not, I think, I'm not sure exactly where it is. But that's how many people are. Jesus is standing in the middle of the court right there with a sack lunch. And he's going to feed all those people. And he does. After it's over with, he has the stuff collected up. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Anybody notice anything missing? The fish. There's no fish, only bread. Why? The fish, A, I hate fish. Don't have any fish left over, okay? But no, the fish, Jesus knew if too much fish was left over, it was going to go bad, right? Fish is going to go bad a lot faster than bread. So he very easily could have told people on your way out, pick some bread out of this basket, okay? But he was not going to let the fish get spoiled or rotten or whatever. Now, I had a guy in youth group a long time ago tell us this story, and he said, your life is like a sack lunch. You have to offer God what you have, and he's going to put it to use. This verse here tells me no matter what it is that you give him to use, he's not going to waste it. You may think you don't have a lot to offer. Gideon did not think he had a lot to offer. But whatever he did have to offer did not go to waste. We, uh, I told you a little bit about my baseball team that I coached, the Simi Strike, and we had a, a family on that team who, the son, the son who, who played for me, his, he was 13 years old, and his mom developed cancer uh, three or four years ago. And he continued to play with us and, and do his best. And there were time, as time went on, mom couldn't make it to as many games. But when she did, she was in a wheelchair and just not looking good and, and, and all that stuff. And then a year ago, almost a year ago this week, a little over a year ago, uh, she passed away. And I had two teams of, of boys on this team. And, and I had to tell all of them, you know, your brother Lucas, 
who's not here today, his mom just died of cancer. And I told them, we're going we're gonna to take this opportunity for you guys to learn what it is like to think outside yourself and, and think of somebody else. So all of those guys wrote letters to Lucas, and they all were texting him every day. And, and uh, the team put together a little gift basket of, of cards and made sure that the family was taken care of and all that stuff. But before she died, uh, my wife and I went over to the house, and she was on hospice care, and we knew that she didn't have a lot of time left. And we said our goodbyes to her. And my wife was pretty close to her because my wife, when she was five, she had kidney cancer. Didn't know if she was going to make it when she was five. She came over that. So her and Christina had a lot of conversations over those last few years, uh, cancer-related stuff, you know, just kind of feeding off each other and, like, you know, words of encouragement to one another. And so my wife and I, we went to say goodbye to Christina that night. And after we finished talking to her, we were talking to her husband in, in the living room of his house. And he told me this story. He said, a week ago, when we were told that she's probably not going to make it much longer, it was just her and I sitting in the, in the hospital room. And she said, they were talking about, you know, what's the service going to look like? And she'd say, I want it to be, you know, bright colors, and I want it to be a joyous thing, and I want people to hear about Jesus and all that kind of stuff at my service. And he said something to the effect of, you know, I'm, I can't believe how good you're taking all this. And you know what? People who were watching this from the outside, you never would have known that Christina was down in the dumps, if she ever was. I really don't think she ever was. She had this attitude of joy and just attitude. Remember last week we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. What did we say? Joy is what? Joy is not a, joy is not a feeling. Joy is a what? Attitude, right? Joy is not a feeling. Joy is an attitude. Joy is not, the kind of joy the Bible talks about is not, it's Christmas morning, I get to open presents. That, that's not joy. Joy is an attitude of positive attitude no matter what is going on. And Christina displayed this during her time. And she said to her husband that night, she said to her husband that night, I have no choice but to be positive because that's my blood type. And they kind of laughed at it, right? I have no choice. I have to be positive because I am be positive. Okay? And when he told me that story that night, the next time I had practice with my team, we ended practice about a half an hour earlier, and we all sat down in center field, and we just talked, talked about this. And at the end of that conversation, we decided the See Me Strike motto for the rest of that season was going to be, be positive. So after every game, when we, you, know, you normally get your hands in the middle, one, two, three, strike. Our team... One, two, three, be positive. Because we talk about it all the time. We talked about it with them on the field. But what did we say two weeks ago? On the baseball field and off the baseball field, you only have control of two things. What are they? Attitude and effort. The only things you have control over. You strike out, your attitude from that point forward is your decision. Nobody else's. Okay? Anybody can be in a good mood and you hit a home run, but it takes a real, real strong, mature person to be in a positive mood when you strike out when you make an error, when things aren't going your way. The way you act when things are not going your way means more and carries more weight than the way you act when things are going your way, right? So we decided Be Positive was going to be our, our motto for the rest of the year. And so the first game that Lucas came back to us in uh, a game, at the end of the game, we, we want two, three, be positive. We hadn't told him this yet. And so he turns to me and goes, why are we cheering for a blood type? And so I pulled him and his dad on the field, and I told him what was going on. And his dad said, Lucas, this is exactly what your mom was talking about. 
She said, negative situation can be turned into a positive if we allow God to do so. And so we continued to do this, and we had these T-shirts made. And all of the parents on this team, 28 different families, all the parents had this shirt, Be Positive, and it has uh, the initials of the lady who died on there. And they wore this shirt to almost every game we played to the extent that parents on the other teams were coming over going, what is that all about? And they were able to basically give them a gospel message of positive attitude of joy through Christina Rieker. Now, here's my point. With, with the fish not being wasted and the idea that God doesn't waste anything, Christina had every right and every reason to think that that last week of her life was just a waste. There's nothing else that's going to happen. That I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven, and it's over. She had no idea that 28 boys were going to, over and over again, be reminded about a positive attitude in life, a positive attitude in life. And some of these boys are going to grow up to become much more mature men because of what she said on her deathbed. Because a year later, I'm standing here talking to you about it, right? Uh, the, the family who's, who I'm talking about, they were hoping to be here today, but they had some sickness run in the family, so they weren't able to be here. But they would be very happy to know that in the memory of her mother, their mother, that the attitude of be positive, the message of be positive is still being displayed. And you guys are now going to go to your families and to your workplaces and everywhere else and and. Hopefully you're able to, whatever it is that you go through in your life, if you go through it with an attitude of joy, those are the things that non-Christians notice. And those are the things that non-Christians go, there's something different about you. How in the world can you carry yourself the way you are, given what's going on? And then you have the opportunity to spread the love of God. Now, oh, I think I have one more slide. I want to make sure I hit it here. There was, no, there was leftover bread, but no fish. God does not waste anything. This is our team at, at Christina's funeral. Not all of them were there, but we all wore those suits, and we were there for that funeral. And I got to tell you something. That this morning, as I, was, um, as I was coming here, as I was standing in the back, I had a gentleman come up to me, and he said, my wife and I were here a couple weeks ago, and we really loved the way you spoke, and we wanted to come back today. And uh, my wife is very sick. There's, there's some major... Some major uh, medical things going on, and she could not be here today. Her name is Shelly, okay? So I want to encourage you all, as you go through your week this week, make sure that you pray for Shelly. But it just showed me that it's just funny that I was told that story right before I was going to be given this, this message right here, okay? Pastor Matt stood up here and told, talked about a care, care ministry of people that, that could use your help. Um, her husband is here, and, and he talked to me this morning, and, you know, I... I just want to give you my T-shirt, if I could, okay? All right. I don't know all the details of what's going on, but I will tell you this. I want you to take that shirt, and I want you to put it somewhere where you can both see it, okay? I just want you to remember that somebody who died a year, a year and a month ago, she's speaking to you right now, Okay? And she's speaking to your wife. And she's speaking to you guys, too. Okay? This is a gentleman who's new to the church. This is our opportunity right here. Let's, let's, let's jump on the bandwagon and help him out. All right? But no matter what it is we're going through, and again, when this started with Christina, I started to try to implement it in my own life. I have not always been very good at positive attitudes and things are not going well. My wife will be the first one to tell you. 
okay? But ever since this happened, and, I, and I'm preaching it to these 28 kids and saying it over and over and over again, I started to try to implement it in my own life, and I will tell you this, it doesn't solve everything. Not everything is hunky-gory, but life is better. I will tell you that. Life is better if you learn how to go through life with an attitude of joy no matter what is going on. I wish I had, I wish I had more, but I, I don't want to keep you guys here too much longer. But um, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you, okay? And uh, we're all going to be praying for Shelly as well. Dear God, we just thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you for bringing us here today and, and letting us dive into the uh, book of Judges. We don't get into the Old Testament that often, but, Lord, it's so easy for us when you put a situation in front of us or you put things in front of us that you expect us to do or, or ways to act. It's easy for us to say, I'm not the best person for this. I'm not the one that used to be using. There's got to be somebody else better than me for this. But you say, no, no, you're the one that I want. You're the one I'm putting in this situation. I'm putting you there for a reason. And help us to know that whatever it is we have to offer of our time, our talents, our treasure, anything that you've given to us, nothing that we offer to you will ever be put to waste. If you can continue to reach out to people from a lady who's no longer with us, but she is with you, and people will continue to get to know you and hear about you because of her attitude of joy, then that's what we ask for. We just thank you for the life that you've given to us, and we ask that you help us to go through life with the motto of being positive. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.